This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. I'm currently teaching a class of 15-year-olds, and at the start of our poetry unit, I let them rant it out like I usually do. They come out of junior high school, still not sold on poetry, and some never will be. It and Shakespeare tend to be the subjects they're most resistant to, at least initially, in my class, sadly. The novel is coming up fast on things they're resistant to. Because the same sustained reading is getting harder and harder for kids raised on phones and iPads to do in a society that is celebrating digital promiscuity over literacy at an alarming rate. Stupid is as stupid does, but I digress. They always complain about poetry's nebulous nature, how, according to them, anything can mean anything in poetry. No word can be trusted, and that dastardly poet always means something other than what he says, so he can't be trusted. William Carlos Williams' The Little Red Wheelbarrow often gets trashed. It sounds like such a simple poem, and of course, some choose to take it as a metaphor for all life, and kids just hate that because they don't themselves see it. Often, I worry that they come out with a decided frustration that anything can be a symbol for anything because that's how they understand poetry. Now, I want to say that this is not a veiled complaint for the quality of poetic analysis that kids encounter in junior high or elementary school. Junior high language arts is tricky enough. It's a tricky enough beast to teach because in Alberta, where I am, there's no streaming of academic and non-academic. Kids aren't ready for that yet. And junior high kids are much more prone to, shall we say, distraction. No, the genuine issue is their willingness to embrace symbolism at all. I ask kids to cast about my classroom for the most obvious symbol they can see when I start this unit. Within a guess or two, someone always says, the Canadian flag. Perfect. A flag is a very easy symbol to explain because nowhere on it does it say the word or show the map of Canada, and yet the world over has agreed that a red maple leaf between two bars represents Canada. Then I explained to the kids that those bars represent the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and it's red and white to disassociate us from the U.S., who have red, white, and blue, so the oceans are not blue. And I also tell them that it would look awkward, I suppose, with the Antarctic as an upper box over the maple leaf, and that this flag itself is barely 60 years old. And with the best of them, I think I can walk kids through the symbolic meaning of a leaf or a cat in a poem and hopefully leave them satisfied with its meaning. But there are times when it's obvious for sure that something represents the concepts the second you see it. I have taken to calling these concepts alpha symbols. If you have a door in a poem or a story or a novel or a book, 
It's pretty hard not to mention what it stands for. Yes, doors do sometimes just act as ways into things, but ways into things are always something because a way is a thing and a thing is a thing. It's pretty hard not to see meaning when you see water or blood or fire or a heart. No, I'm not getting overly English teachery here. The existence of these symbols, these objects as symbols, means we must all be English analysis of them. There are certain symbols that always represent bigger ideas. They simply do. Yes, in a plot-driven story, if someone walks through a door, it may not be necessary or fruitful to explore that particular door's meaning, but in my experience, alpha symbols are like guys named Dave. There are enough of them, and there are enough of them that are significant that I always take pause when I encounter a new Dave. A door in a poem means transition. It has to. That's what doors do. It marks the transition between one location and another. It is a liminal space. Exactly at what point do you pass from one stage to another? Where are you when you're in both? You're in neither. You're in limbo. You're in hallway. You're in room. If a teenager or a mother or someone dying passes through a door, you must note it symbolically. I'm sorry, that's the rule. It's a dang door. Consider light. Consider in it light in its platonic sense. Plato's famous allegory of the cave from the Republic sees him outline a scenario where a group of individuals are chained facing one direction. Above and behind, there should be a pun in there about seeing a bad boy band. But anyways, they're facing towards one direction. Above and behind them is a light source and various um, figures and animals and things pass before the light, casting shadows, and these shadows are the only thing that the prisoners see. Um, they're the only reality the prisoners have, and so they have only hazy shapes of what things are. One of the prisoners is freed and goes out into the light, which he finds impossible to be in at first. It's blinding. As time passes, he's able to see the true forms of things that really exist that the shadows on the cave were just shadows of. He returns to the cave but cannot convince the other prisoners of this truth. They refuse to believe him. They call him crazy. Plato uses this to say that only the knowledgeable should lead, and in that paradox, only those who wish not to lead are suited to it. But within his allegory, what is light? First and foremost, it's knowledge. It's truth. When a person learns, we say they are enlightened. When they learn or accept truth, they see the light. Light is knowledge. It, it illuminates the dark. In the allegory, the ultimate source of light is the sun, the purest and strongest light source we have. Um, while all other light sources are just poor copies of this. For Plato, the sun was also equated to a source of everything pure, a god. If not Zeus, this is always complicated when dealing with the Greeks, especially the knowledgeable Greeks, deciding if they really believed in the depicted gods, um, then the ultimate source of light and purity in the universe was the sun in its best of forms. 
That's, of course, because light and the sun connect to something basic and primal in us. Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung recognized the universal nature of our most significant symbols as they appear across all our great myths, across all of our shared cultural subconscious. Let's consider how light and heat and the sun, as a symbol of God or the gods, connect then to fire. Almost every pagan faith deifies the sun in some way, which is only obvious. I find it most interesting that in the Greek myth of Prometheus, he, a titan, that is the older generation of gods before the Olympians under Zeus, Prometheus steals fire from the Olympian gods and gives it to the humans. Zeus then punishes him for this by chaining him to a rock and then daily taking the form of an eagle to eat Prometheus's liver. Zeus liked to shapeshift, usually to have sex, but now to just be overly punitive. Fire, as something sacred to the gods, makes a lot of sense on a symbolic level. It's a source of heat and light. Associate those with the allegory in the sun, those are both deified. But it's also one of our great dangers. It's often too much for humanity to handle. Fire is one of those captivating and hard-to-grasp elements like wind and water, but potentially so much more dangerous than them. So easy to associate with supreme powers are these um, th- these major, well, these elements. Um, I write this. Sitting right now in a climate that, despite global warming, still provides weeks of a year where the weather is fatal to human life. But thanks to our harnessing of fire, I am able to heat my domicile and survive. That same tool could destroy my domicile. Even the briefest contact with that tool, with that element, could lead to permanent scarring. Fire is an alpha symbol. It speaks to utility and to danger and to harnessed power, to things that can be built up and yet die down, like passions. Back to Plato, it's also a secondary form of light, a pale and weak secondary version of the sun. Fire is like man reflecting God. Water, again elemental, is another of these alpha symbols. Always. Unlike fire, which is double-sided, water is First and foremost, a symbol of life. Yes, you can have drownings and floods, but water never presents the threat fire does first. Water is the first sign of life's possibility. It's what astronomers seek on other planets as a possibility of life existing. It's what started us and what sustains us. It's what we're mostly made of. What's interesting If fire's mythical source is the sun, the heavens, the gods, it's those masculine gods, the sex-obsessed destroyers of Olympus and the Nile. Water is provided for us by the earth, our mother. And that that has uh, natural attachments to the sacred feminine. The moon, which dictates the tides, waxes and wanes in a monthly cycle. It is female to the sun's masculinity. Um, Together they provide us growth, but water is life. That's its primary symbolic function. 
Its second is as a border, a boundary. It forms a line between locations, but like a door, is also the point of passage between two places. A river may separate two nations, an ocean two continents, but it also is the passage, the road, between them. The Greeks separated life and the afterlife by the river Styx. To the British Celts, the paradise of Avalon is an island reached by boat. Water itself is liminal, the stage in between ice and gas. Now, in explaining these alpha symbols, one could easily get carried away, falling into the trap that the cynics of the study of literature see as seeing something as everything and everything as something. Using Young and Campbell's understanding of uh, this combined human consciousness, um, this shared consciousness, makes one certain. But it can easily be corrupted if you let the theories of Young's one-time mentor, Sigmund Freud, seep in. Freud's obsession with sex says more about himself than the collective unconsciousness, I think, and he's been largely relegated to being a little too into just one way of thinking. And if you use him as your guide, everything longer than it is wide is a phallus, and nothing and no one can go in anywhere without it being a metaphor for sex. It ruins literature to always read it through a Freudian lens, just as always reading it through the lens of a Marxist or a feminist can ruin it. It can enhance it to have it in the background, but if you only put on those glasses, that's all you'll see. Yes, there are times it is a conversation. You can't discuss vampires with talking sex, for example. But schools of critical thought should be there for when needed not as the driving force for confirmation bias. When you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The key thing to alpha symbols is their power and simplicity. Contrast them with, say, the Holy Cross. The cross, despite its significance to Western society, like the crescent moon in the Middle East, or the yin-yang or the Buddha in the Far East, The cross cannot be treated as an alpha symbol because its interpretation is not universal. It comes with connotations and subjectivity. A Christian sees the crucifix as a symbol of a personal relationship he has with his Savior. A person like me sees it as a symbol to respect, but with a tumultuous history that we ourselves do not believe in. A symbol of peace that can sometimes justify the most unpeaceful of behaviors. A biblical scholar can consider all the the sort of rights, the goods, feeding the hungry, and the wrongs, uh, holy wars like crusades done in its name. An atheist may see it as a symbol of lies and even oppression. A fundamentalist, Muslim, as an antagonist. As important as symbols um, from religions are, they cannot be alpha symbols because they lack those two things um, that alpha symbols must have. Universality and simplicity. Religious symbols are never universal and create complex and divisive discussions. Like numbers and letters, alpha symbols are agreed upon without a discussion. When you think about it, there's no reason for the Arabic numeral three to mean Three. Some Roman numerals make a bit more sense. Three, three scratched lines, sure makes more sense than that curvy thing. 
but we've agreed that two brackets facing left on top of each other is the same thing as those three Roman numeral lines. And that's good, because when you get up into the high Roman numerals, not a dang thing makes sense. Letters of the language of a particular alphabet call for similar agreement. We have agreed that a line with a, a sort of right-facing curve atop it is my first initial, a P. And we have agreed when it is not being used for uh, the beginning of a sentence or a proper noun, you just go ahead and drag that thing down a little bit, and it's lowercase p. There's nothing that says that that phonetically represents that idea. We've just agreed upon it. Though I sigh in frustration when anyone complains about poetry or reading in general, I have my prepared arguments regardless. A new one, as a justification, is reading is boring. As if the exclusive job of education is to entertain. You're telling me you think math is fun? It's not the kids' faults, though. We're the ones who plunk them in front of iPads before they can speak and wonder why the front of their brain is so underdeveloped. And I get their annoyance when they feel poetry gets overanalyzed, though much of their reluctance is due to the fact that they don't care for analyzing anything. Some of them. I, I will say some of them. However, one thing I can convince them of is that there exist these what I call alpha symbols, universals, in what Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, and their like call our collective unconsciousness. When these symbols of the form I have outlined here make any sort of an appearance, by their very natures and definitions, they must stand for something. They are the simplest indicators of the experience we share because life is more than what we just live. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.